session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or like my page on uh Facebook or Instagram to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcasts on iTunes. Again, the studio number 3104410555. Uh, happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day to everyone here in the United States that's celebrating. I will um, likely do a segment after I discuss the book of the week. So I look forward to talking about him and some thoughts I wanted to share this year uh, as we celebrate his birthday. Before I do the summary of the book of the week, um, let me announce the book for next week. It is called Show Me All Your Scars, True Stories of Living with Mental Illness. And um, it's hard to say an author because this book is uh, shares 20 stories from individuals living with mental illness and what they've experienced. And so I'm looking forward to reading this book. And in a way, it does um, relate to the book I'll talk about this week, because I think in a sense, it can reduce the stigma that we attach to mental illness when we hear more about people's stories. Um, so looking forward to reading that book. The introduction is by Patrick Kennedy, but then there's 20 individuals who share their stories of dealing and living with mental illness. So that's the book of the week. Show me all your scars. The book for this past week, which I'll talk about tonight, is A First Rate Madness, Uncovering the Links Between Leadership and Mental Illness. And the author is Dr. Nasir Ghayami, um, who uh, was ac is actually an Iranian-American. Uh, I didn't know that when I picked up the book. I wasn't sure if his name was Arabic or Persian, but um, he is a professor of psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine and director of the Mood Disorders Program at Tufts Medical Center in Boston. So his book I found really interesting and fascinating, uh, A First-Rate Madness, Uncovering the Links Between Leadership and Mental Illness. So the central thesis, we could say, of this book is that in times of peace and prosperity, someone who is mentally healthy or mentally normal can be a very good leader but that when it comes to times of crisis, what is needed is the leadership of someone who's actually mentally unhealthy or actually suffers or is dealing with some kind of mental illness, which can sound a little bit strange to hear that, to think that somehow being mentally ill can be better than being mentally healthy. And that's why this book, in a way, does address this issue of the stigma of mental illness, that actually sometimes having a mental illness can be beneficial or can have some benefits, and that being quote-unquote healthy or normal um, 
isn't always a good thing or isn't good in all situations and conditions. So that's a central thesis of the book. Now he goes through various leaders and outlines their lives and tries to, uh, in essence, diagnose them based on memoirs or things they've written themselves, things that people have written about them to try to help diagnose them. Also looking at their family history, he outlines four different ways that he um, approaches this in diagnosing symptoms, genetics, course of illness, and treatment, all of which can give it a better understanding of a diagnosis, whether we're talking about someone currently living or someone from the past. Now, he uh, boils it down to four ways or four different characteristics that mental illness might uh, give and, and how they've affected various leaders in, in history. Um, and specifically, he focuses on people who have depression and people who have manic or hyperthymic, which is kind of like a, a, a hypomanic personality that's more stable than hypomanic uh, phase, um, but involves some of the same thing of having more energy, not needing as much sleep, um, talkativeness, and things of that nature. Uh, and he looks at those two things. So he's not saying that someone with schizophrenia would be a good leader during time of crisis. So it's not any mental illness or all mental illness, but that at times um, mental illness can be beneficial. So in this case, rather than thinking that these leaders became successful despite their mental illness, it might be better to say they became successful or were successful because of their mental illness, which is Again, a quite interesting idea that he brings forward. Um, but specifically those four different areas he talks about when it comes to mania or hyperthymic um, personality. Of course, some had both. If they had bipolar disorder, they would have both the mania and the depression. But those from mania and hyperthymic personality would include uh, the characteristics of creativity and resilience, both of which can be important during times of crisis. Someone who is creative and part of being manic at times is having a flight of ideas or making connections or seeing things in a way that people don't. And oftentimes in a time of crisis, we need someone who can see things from a different perspective, who, who doesn't see things the way most people do and can come up with a unique and creative approach. But also resilience makes people uh, able to bounce back or overcome uh, when things are difficult and challenging. And from depression, he describes realism. Um, and this idea that most quote-unquote normal people have what might be called a mild positive illusion. So actually, in some ways, we're a little bit out of touch when we're normal, which sounds maybe strange, but it does seem to be the norm, that most people think they're better looking or smarter or more successful than other people, or they'd rank themselves as higher than average on basically every good characteristic, even though that really isn't true or can't be true. Or put it in another way, another aspect is that they think they have more control or power than they actually do. And again, as a leader in crisis, if you think you have more control or power than you actually do, this can have really uh, damaging effects. Whereas someone with depression has what he describes as depressive realism. They oftentimes can actually see the world and see themselves more realistically which can contribute, or again, it's a chicken or the egg kind of a thing, um, but might contribute to their depression or is why they feel depressed, but they have a more realistic view. So he describes people who are leaders who have depression, and I'll 
break it down a little bit more um, and how that gave them more realism, a more realistic approach to things, and also more empathy, being able to connect to others. If you've experienced your own pain and have suffered, oftentimes this can make it easier for you to understand other people's pains, other people's suffering. Um, so let's go through these different aspects or characteristics he talks about. So in the chapters looking at creativity, he talks about one Civil War general named General William Sherman, um, who came up with new tactics that were aligned with the new technology of warfare that led to the success of the North. And because of his, um, I, I believe he had bipolar disorder symptoms of both depression and mania, that's what actually he says in the book, Dr. Raimi talks about him um, contributing in that way to him being a success. And then he also talks about Ted Turner, who was uh, who started CNN and many other uh, companies and was involved in broadcasting in various ways and how his mania um, contributed to him being successful in that way, that in times of crisis, he was able to stay one step ahead or he was able to see ahead and take risks that other people we're not willing to take. Now, when it comes to uh, the next one he discusses, which is realism, he describes Winston Churchill and Abraham Lincoln, two very famous leaders in history. Uh, Winston Churchill was severely depressed. He talked about uh, depression as his black dog that he kind of carried with him or um, that he always had with him. And he was severely depressed in various times in his life to the point where he said he didn't like to stand close to balconies or close to railways because of fear that he would jump. Um, and I think it's remarkable to hear these stories when we consider uh, people who we admire and uh, some of the largest figures in history and that they were that depressed at times in their life. Again, it does give us this idea that we shouldn't look at mental illness as just this bad thing, or that if someone has mental illness, somehow they're less than or not important or can't contribute. These individuals contributed con considerably and significantly to, to our history and in some ways to our survival and well-being. And it's important to note that it wasn't just because or that they overcame their depression, but because of their depression, rather, that they were able to be so successful. So unlike Chamberlain, who could not recognize the serious threat of Adolf Hitler and Nazism, uh, Dr. Raimi mentions how because of his depression, Winston Churchill was more realistic in recognizing the threat and was able to respond in a better way. Experiencing pain and sadness sometimes can give you that understanding that sometimes things are bad, sometimes they can be bad, and he was more realistic is, uh, is, is how he describes it. And also Abraham Lincoln, who him, he too was also severely depressed at times of his life, maybe with some hyperthymic personality as well, but he experienced some very severe depressions to the point where he also mentioned that he would never carry a pocket knife because he couldn't trust himself. So again, this idea that because of the depression, he could almost be suicidal. He didn't trust himself to have a knife on him. I think it's pretty remarkable. One of the most well-known and celebrated presidents in American history, and we recognize that he was severely mentally ill. He was not uh, what we would consider fully healthy, um, and I think it's pretty remarkable. But again, he had the realistic approach 
seeing things in a way, but also he describes that with him, there was the empathy too, that he was able to see all sides fairly well and connect to them from the slaves to the people in the North and also to people in the South. Um, he says, we read from the same Bible, so you're recognizing that we're all the same. We all uh, are similar. And because of that, he was able to be such a uh, wonderful leader during that very, very fragile moment or period in American history. And Dr. Raimi ar argues that it was because of his depression that he was able to do what others could not do in that time, that a completely healthy leader, mentally healthy leader, might not have been able to accomplish what he did. Next, moving on to empathy, uh, which can be strongly brought about from depression, as he describes this feeling of having more empathy for others. He talks about uh, Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., and it's very uh, good timing because it is Martin Luther King Jr. Day here, um, both of whom uh, sorry, attempted suicide during their uh, adolescence. So they both had suicide attempts at a young age. Martin Luther King Jr. actually had two suicide attempts, um, which to me is really important to keep in mind because we think of them, of course, and they accomplished so much, but we could have lost both of them in very at their very young ages. We wouldn't have had that, uh, what they contributed later on. And it reminds me of the importance of suicide prevention, of talking about suicide and realizing that um, people deserve a second chance, meaning that when someone's mentally ill, we shouldn't just assume, okay, well, you know, maybe now if someone told you this kid attempted suicide, some might think, well, we shouldn't expect much from him or her, but we know that this is not the case. And here are two prime examples of that. Uh, so I think it's it's good to hear about actually their mental illness because it can contribute to re reducing that stigma of mental illness. So here we have two incredible leaders, both of whom pr practice nonviolent um, ways of reaching their goals. And they contributed so much, but at the same time, they experienced bouts of depression and, and even suicide attempts. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. But both with Gandhi and Martin Luther King, they were able to see things from another side. They had empathy for others, and even their approach was empathic. Uh, and as he describes, nonviolent resistance or nonviolent ways that they approached making change were not passive. They were still actually very aggressive, or I would rather use the term assertive. They were not passive. Um, they were very assertive in the ways that they tried to reach their goals, but they did it with empathy, with almost radical empathy, as he describes it, uh, in trying to achieve their goals. And then moving to the fourth characteristics he describes, that's resilience. And in this category, he talks about FDR and JFK, two very celebrated American presidents. And FDR, in his, uh, as an adult, he got polio, which uh, paralyzed them essentially. He had very little strength and ability to move his legs, um, but was able to to become so successful and the only U.S. president to have three terms and really the only one that we ever will have because now it's in the Constitution that there's a two-term limit for president. But he was resilient and able to overcome so much and also uh, John F. Kennedy as well. And he talks about John F. Kennedy who experienced Addison's disease which um, I'm not a medical doctor, but it's a, a issue of the adrenal gland that affects things like hormones that you have in your body. And he had to go through extensive medical treatments as well, which had a huge effect on him. But he was incredibly resilient 
um, because of what he experienced. Again, this is Dr. Chaimi's, um book where he talks about these issues. That's the idea he puts forward, that because of what he went through, it made him more resilient. Now, specifically with JFK, he also describes how treatment can be so important. And he mentions that in the early part of his presidency, where he actually did not do so well, there was the Bay of Pigs fiasco and other uh, things where he, that he did not handle well or did not go so well. Um, he talks about how he was receiving treatment that was not good for him. He was getting too many drugs, too many steroids that were just too much and taking a toll on him physically and psychologically. But then there was almost like a coup d'etat medically uh, within the White House where they changed who was prescribing him and who was overseeing him medically and they got his medications more under control and Dr. Raimi says this can p possibly be what contributed to his more success later uh, in his presidency. Of course, his presidency was cut short tragically because he was assassinated but much of his success could be attributed to that. Uh, so it's really a fascinating book looking at these different individuals. And of course, I I think we have to take everything with a grain of salt. He's doing his best and he seems to have thoroughly researched each of the leaders that he describes, but it is in hindsight and we don't really know. But the evidence he puts forward shows that it's very likely these individuals did suffer the mental illnesses he describes, and we can see the effects that he is talking about. Um, and he talks later in the book about the normal leaders and again how they can be good in times of peace and prosperity but not good during times of crisis he talks about leaders such as george bush and tony blair and how they reacted to september 11th and then uh, the invasion of iraq um, and other leaders as well including chamberlain uh, and 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 some some more but he calls them or he uses this term homoclites which is uh, something that was described i think in the 1960s uh, by some psychologist, which is basically the average person. And although we think average is good and healthy is good, as it turns out for some things, it is better to have someone who is a little bit more unstable. And so exactly how to reconcile that I think is, is interesting because um, what does that mean? Who do we elect or who should we want to elect? And as I mentioned earlier in the segment, I don't think that means Anyone mentally ill is better than anyone mentally healthy to be a leader at any time, including a time of crisis, but that we have to be aware of this um, idea or this thought that sometimes a mental illness can have some positive attributes um, or positive characteristics that it gives the individual who is dealing with that. And with that, you know, he does have a sec section at the end of the book where he talks about the stigma of mental illness and actually how much about mental illness in current leaders isn't talked about because of the stigma, and we think it essentially would disqualify them from becoming elected. Uh, so we don't find out a lot of times what people were going through till decades later. And that's what some of he talks about in the research he talks about, that you, you have a harder time studying people when they're alive because so much effort is taken to hide things. And he talks about how many of the families of the leaders he describes did exactly that. So it wasn't until years and years later, even until sometimes the closer family died, that more of the details came out. But um, this idea that we shouldn't assume that because someone is mentally ill, they are unfit for anything from being the leader of a country to any kind of job or even romantic partner. It's not something that should disqualify someone. 
at the same time, we should be realistic. It doesn't mean there's no negative consequences to mental illness, but just being aware that there can possibly some be some positives too. So I found that really, really interesting and enjoyed this book. I think it's a pretty fascinating read. So again, that was A First Rate Madness by Dr. Nasir Ghaemi. And the book for this week is Show Me All Your Scars, True Stories of Living with Mental Illness. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. back uh, studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 i mentioned at the top of the show that today is martin luther king jr day here in the united states where we celebrate his birthday it's always on this uh monday that comes around his birthday which actually i think this year is on his birthday january 15th um, and it is important to celebrate this very significant uh, individual in u.s history who helped advance the civil rights movement but i think it's worth looking at him in maybe a different way than we look at him now and by that i mean it's become very cliche not that i think it's necessarily bad but to post a quote from martin luther king on martin luther king day and i think that's okay so i'm not saying that's bad but i think a lot of people post quotes from him and he's become this figure that we all accept that we like Whereas I think a lot of people might not have agreed with him if he were alive today. Uh, I actually really think what he had to say was very significant and important, but I think some people who might actually strongly disagree with his ideas, they celebrate him now because it's the thing to do. Because there is this kind of warm, cuddly Martin Luther King Jr. that we all just accept and love, but he was a man who wanted change and he of course brought about great change i remember when i was a kid in school he was one of the people that people uh that our teachers would tell us if you think one person can't change the world or can't make a difference think of martin luther king and of course he didn't change the world by himself he he had a lot of people that um, were part of his cause and of course part of that was his leadership but of course many had to be involved but he was an incredible person because of what he accomplished and really at a young age i think when he first started the montgomery bus boycott he was in his 20s um so so quite young but really a remarkable man but the reason why i bring this up is that if we want to remember dr martin luther king jr we should really remember who he was and what he stood for of course we all know that he was very very uh adamant about advancing the rights of the african-american community and and he was able to do a lot with that um, but that wasn't the only thing or things he cared about he was also a strong proponent of the poor individuals of america and that was really his next uh, big you know program that he was doing was to advance the the rights of the poor and what's going on in this country so i think a lot of people that actually say they uh, you know, they like him and they'll post a quote that they agree with now, maybe they would feel differently if he were alive. Um, and by that, I mean, we should be aware of who he was and if we want to celebrate and recognize what he actually stood for, which I think was really uh, important things to keep in mind. We likely, if he was alive, he would not be happy with the state of America where we still have so many poor and incarcerated individuals to him. I think this would 
not be okay. So he would not be happy about it. And not only would he not be happy about it, he would ask or he himself would be involved in trying to change that, which means making things uncomfortable. So it's very easy now to look back at the sit-ins and the marches and the boycotts and all that and think, oh, that was great. But we forget that when those things were going on, they at times inconvenienced people. And what I observe nowadays is that when people are protesting peacefully and, you know, uh, kind of in a way doing the actions that he himself helped spread as ideas of nonviolent action and um, uh, civil disobedience, people get very frustrated and angry. So they, they say, oh, people are pro protesting again. That's so annoying. Um, or why are these people still doing this? Or why are people kneeling at the national anthem? That's a sign of disrespect and it's just bad. You shouldn't do it there. Although they don't make it clear where you can and should protest and when it's okay, but they have lots of problems with the ways that people protest. But his ideas were that we shouldn't accept things. We shouldn't accept injustice. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. One of his famous quotes. We can't accept it when people in our society are being, being treated poorly. We have to do something about it. And so he wasn't necessarily so popular when he was alive. Of course, he was assassinated for that very reason. He was a polarizing figure that not everyone necessarily agreed with. I think his ideas of advancing civil rights and trying to deal with racism in the United States was very important. Unfortunately, it's something that we still are dealing with. So I think that's another problem that I, I have with the way people look at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is that he helped end racism or he, uh, because of what he did, racism no longer exists or uh, blacks and whites were equal in the United States. That still isn't the case. We still have significant racism at a systematic level in the United States. It hasn't gone away. Um, yes, there was advancements, but it doesn't mean that equality was achieved and that true justice was established. Um, so that's something to me that's very important to keep in mind. But those ideas of advancing civil rights and also speaking on behalf of the poor and not accepting people being poor, I think are very important. Um, he, at least I don't want to risk, I have to research more to make sure I'm saying that correctly, but bordered on almost being a socialist, if not being a socialist and wanting that. So I think a lot of the people today, if you look at politicians who are posting uh, quotes by him because they feel they have to, because it's the right thing to do, I think they would strongly disagree with a lot of what he is saying and are just saying, oh, you know, let's celebrate him because it's the popular thing to do. But that's exactly what he was talking about, is that we have to sometimes do what's not popular, what's not convenient, what's not liked by everyone in the fight for justice. We have to keep caring about the things that matter. Um, but, you know, one of my favorite quotes of his, I've mentioned it many times on the show, is in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends meaning that, yes, it hurts when people are against you and they say really harmful, negative things about you. But what's even worse and even more painful is when there's people who say they agree with you, but they don't do anything or say anything about it, who think, oh, yeah, that's really bad, that's unfair, or that injustice is not okay, but they don't do anything about making a difference or making a change. Um, to me, that's really, really important or related to that. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about the things that matter. And so 
a lot of us are very silent about the things that matter because to talk about the things that matter, to try to bring about change is uncomfortable. It creates um, even uh, disunity at times. It creates people becoming uncomfortable, maybe not liking each other in some ways or not liking at least the conversations that we're having, but we can't avoid them. So when it comes to racism in this country, we have to still talk about it. And I know a lot of times people say they're sick of talking about it, or they're tired of, of talking about it, or they feel that people make everything about race and they don't want to have those conversations. Well, you can be sick of talking about it, but the reality is it's still an issue in this country and we can't ignore it just because we don't like talking about it or doesn't feel good talking about it. We have to still have those conversations. Even I can extend that to relationships. If you're in a relationship, you might not like having some of the conversations that are needed to help keep your relationship going strong, but you need to have them. Just because you don't like a conversation doesn't mean it should be avoided or the subject or topic needs to be ignored. We have to do the opposite. So on this day that we're remembering Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I think it's good for us to really remember who he was. He was someone who didn't mind causing inconvenience. Civil disobedience was essentially that. In a peaceful way, creating a disturbance or an inconvenience that brought attention to what it was that you were fighting for. And to me, the way many people are protesting now fits that mold exactly. Uh, the football players kneeling dur during the national anthem. They in no way were trying to disrespect the flag or the military. Even Colin Kaepernick, who was uh, the first person to start doing that, talked to a member of the military to make sure it was done in a way that was respectful to the military. He was trying to bring um, attention to police brutality against African Americans. He had nothing negative about the military or the U.S. to say. And the idea that people sometimes say, well, if you don't like this country, leave makes no sense to me and to me is very un-American, uh, unpatriotic and uh, just I, I can't really wrap my head around that because you don't like something you should leave. No, you, you love something, you want to make it better, you recognize the faults and weaknesses and want to make it better. Or to put it another way, because you love all the members of your country, you want the best for all of them. So you're not going to ignore suffering. So to me, that would actually be unpatriotic or un-American to not care about fellow Americans who are suffering or going through pain and are not getting a fair deal and things are not just. So to tolerate injustice is un-American to me, not to talk about it or to bring attention to the injustices that exist. So again, I hope we can all celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. today, a remarkable man who, who changed uh, in a lot of ways, the course of history in the United States, especially when it comes to the civil rights movement. But I think it's important to have a more realistic understanding of who he was and what he stood for and even recognize that maybe you don't like everything he stood for. And that's okay too. I think it's better to be realistic than just to idealize someone and idolize them and not look at who they were and what they stood for. So maybe not a bad idea today or any other day to look more at what he talked about, what he really stood for, um, not just read some of the quotes. Even I know I did that today right now on the show and mentioned some of his quotes, so I could be in a way guilty of that too. Um, but to read a little more deeply about what he actually stood for, that he wasn't just a cuddly, nice figure that everyone liked. He was someone that was trying to bring about change. And anytime you try to bring about change, 
you're going to ruffle some feathers and some people are going to strongly dislike you. But because he believed in what he was fighting for and he believed in trying to bring about peace and justice, he kept fighting. So it's good to remember him and I'd say study him a little bit more carefully to really understand him, but also I hope carrying that message that we don't give up on caring about the things that matter. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. So think about the things that you yourself ignore or on the flip side, the things that matter to you or you see that matter in our world today and do something about it. So uh, that's the best way, my idea, to celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, that brings us to our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. back let's go to a caller radio hamra you're on the air hello yes hi thanks for calling thank you for your wonderful program oh thank you i have a question okay i'm 45 years old i am dating an american guy for a while mm -hmm. which is over more than two years mm -hmm. sometimes is some uh, Subjects, kind of, we cannot uh, agree with it, and then uh, we just ignore it. Which one of them is the President Trump? Okay. So he's one of the supporters, and I'm not. Mm -hmm. Anytime this uh, topic comes out and we try to uh, talk about it, he says he don't want to uh, talk about it. Kind of, he ignores it. Mm -hmm. Which one time we got, we got a little bit uh, argument about it. He said, so he don't want to talk about it. And then he, after he left, I kept quiet. I didn't say anything. So after he left, he texted me and he uh, said he is sorry about uh, what he said. And he tried to not to talk about it. With after that, too, either uh, we don't talk about it mm -hmm. or we just take it as a joke. Yeah. And then other thing is about this football player. They were kneeling for the national anthem. Yes, exactly. And he wasn't watching football because they were disrespecting the flag. Mm -hmm. Flag. I tried to talk to him to say they are not disrespecting the flag. This is the way they are trying to draw the attention to the uh, this uh, racist things uh, in society. He doesn't agree with this kind mm -hmm. of stuff. I wanted to know we have different opinion on this kind of stuff. Yeah. What can I do? Okay. Well, you know, that's an interesting question you're bringing up. Because, um, of course, when we talk about partners and being good partners for each other for a romantic relationship, we know that similarity is good. The more similar you are, the better. The old adage of opposites attract is not a good uh, recipe for relationship. So it's important to be similar. Now, of course, you're not going to be similar on everything, so that's okay. So a few things come to my mind. One is um, recognizing that I think it's good to talk about these things to a degree, but only if you guys can have a peaceful conversation and you recognize that although you present your ideas, don't really try too hard to convince each other. 
because the truth of it is it's not very likely that either of you is going to change your mind. So I think it's okay to talk, but if each time you talk it turns into a fight, then I'd say don't talk about it, or you have to considerably change the way you have the discussion because it's just not going to work. You're not going to convince him to not like Trump. It's not very likely, and he's not going to get you on the Trump train and make you a you know, supporter of Trump. It's not very likely at all. Just like when people... Because that is true, but sometimes it just bothers me <laughs> how he cannot see the thing. Well, you know, I, I, can, I can see where you're coming from. And when it comes to politics, we think that we're being rational. And this goes from, for you also, so it's for everyone. We think that we're being purely rational, but usually it's a much more emotional decision that, that, that is being made. So we think, I think about an issue, and then I come to a conclusion, and then I, I make my decision. But usually we have an emotional reaction, and then we choose... Uh, our side, or especially when it comes to political candidates, it's much more that way. You know, we, we don't want to think that. We th- yeah, we'd like to think it's because purely of the person's policies and all these important things, but very often it has to do with emotional reactions. Even if we go back to, I, since I talked about JFK, that, that was the first televised debate with, between him, uh, John F. Kennedy, and Richard Nixon, and people who listened to the debate on the radio thought Richard Nixon won the debate, but people who watched the debate thought that John F. Kennedy Jr., more of them thought he won. And of course, he was very handsome. And also, um, Richard Nixon had bad makeup and he was feeling sick and wasn't looking very good. So it seems very likely that people were persuaded by his looks and his charisma and his charm for John F. Kennedy, not just by the content of what he was saying. And we have to accept that. So I just think it's it, trying to convince your boyfriend of you know, Trump being bad or that he shouldn't support him, you're just going to basically bang your head against the wall and get nowhere. And you're to keep repeating to do that. So you guys can talk about it if you're able to, because I think, you know, one of the things we're realizing is that people are becoming more and more polarized and getting into their echo chambers and not hearing the other side. And that's a problem where we're not hearing the other side and what they think. And it's important for us to have those conversations. Do people change their minds? Yes, but it's usually gradual or it's something that they come to themselves. If you try to, you know, hammer it into their head, it's not going to work. So I would say if you have any conversations about these things, don't get into, um, you know, I'm going to convince him this time. Oh, this time Trump said something that I'm sure he's going to say was bad because he might not. You can still try to have the conversation, but just be ready that he's more than likely not going to see it the way you do. And you have to accept that there's biases that you have too, that although you think he's the biased one who doesn't see how bad Trump is, it's very likely that people you support, you're likely going to ignore their faults or negative things they do because we all do that to a degree. So I wouldn't say you can't have the conversations, but if they're becoming fights and blowups every time, then I'd say you're better off avoiding the, the topic altogether. But if you can have conversations, that's fine. Now, another issue that comes up related to what you said is, um, you know, reminds me of John Gottman's research, and he wrote the book, The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. And one of the principles is solving your solvable problems. And the first step in that is that you, you recognize that maybe some of your problems are not solvable. And we think, or sometimes the conventional that wisdom... That's my next question. Yeah. So the, the, when the problems, uh, like... To me, this is very uh, severe because we have just totally different opinion in politics mm-hmm. and things about the society as abortion, as this. Uh, uh, because we are coming from different uh, background, we know uh, how uh, 
that feels being in minority and uh, people don't pay attention what you are going through. Mm-hmm. Even some of the societies like Iran, they never heard what of the uh, minority are going through. We right. never had chance to even defend ourselves, which we get on this society when they are a minority, how that hurts and then how they are trying to uh, find any way to draw the attention to the problem. But I think he doesn't get those things, like, which uh, really makes sense. These mm-hmm. are, the things that are going on in the society is real. Right. Well, you know, if yeah. he never gets this kind of stuff, so how is that going to be? Later on, going to be a big problem? or just? Uh, well, it's possible. That's where, you know, so I was going to say, you know, he talks about solving your solvable problems and that, Although we think we have to solve every issue, we don't. And even very healthy and happily married couples have some issues that they just never fully resolve and they learn to deal with and live with. At the same time, something that I'd want you to keep in mind is, you know, you talk about him not being able to relate to minorities and relate to these, you know, issues in society. But what would be important is for you to make sure you feel that he can relate to you and understands you, your experience, what you feel. And that's where these issues, you know, having different political beliefs doesn't mean you're incompatible and can't be together. But if you especially feel like he doesn't fully get you and doesn't understand you, or if you feel like you guys are so morally or different in your values, that could be a big issue. Now, you guys have survived two years, which is which is good, that shows something. But that's something for you to think about. Do you feel like he really gets you what you've been through and what you go through today? He says he, uh, he understands. Okay. And then even with this, uh, this uh, President, uh, President Trump's uh, subject came out, and then later on he texted me, he apologized, and then he told me he should have uh, uh, let me uh, to say whatever I needed to say in, he doesn't need to be agree with it, but he mm-hmm. should listen. Okay. That, that, I mean, I think that's a very mature response from him. Um, we know people get very heated in these types of debates when it comes to politics, and he recognized maybe he got carried away. Maybe you did too, and that's good uh, that he was able to say that, and I hope you guys can have that respectful discussion. But what I was des- uh, describing or talking about was overall, do you feel like he knows what you've been through as an immigrant or what you still go through as a minority. Yes, he, he values that a Good. lot. Okay. And that's what I'd say is important because you have to, you know, even if you have different views on uh, political things, that can be okay. It, like I said, that doesn't make you necessarily incompatible. But if you feel like he doesn't understand you or if your worldviews are so different that it's hard to really see common ground when you're talking about about a lot of things that could be an issue you know because maybe later in your life you're going to want to or even now contribute in certain ways or be involved in certain types of um, actions and he might not support them and that might be difficult for you so that's something to to consider too but if you feel like he really gets you and he understands you and although he might not recognize some of the things that you think you see in the world it doesn't necessarily make you guys incompatible. Yes. And then on my other question was, sometimes when this kind of a subject, we have a good relationship. He respects me a lot. He good. really kind of 
does the things that makes me happy. We have healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. But when this uh, topic or any disagreement comes up, kind of turns me off totally. Hmm. Okay. Well, uh, what, what about That's it turns you off? or just human being problem, what is that? Or is something serious I'm not paying attention to it? Well, it's hard to say. And, you know, we, we, if we had more time, we'd get into a little bit more about that. But when you say you're, you're, say you're turned off from him and the relationship, or what do, you, what do you feel when you guys have disagree about these things? Like uh, this issue came up with us. I think, mm-hmm. okay, no. Uh, so we didn't argue about it, uh, kind of, uh, we got over it uh, when we were talking about it. And then after he left, I said, okay, when he leaves, I'm going to text him, I'm not going to see him anymore. So it makes so you think of breaking up. Supports uh, this kind of stuff I don't want to be with. Uh-huh. And then when he texted me and then he apologized, he begged me to forgive him, kind of, I got, okay, so this is logical, I shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Well, that I mean, it's good that he's being logical, but yet it's, it shows how much of an effect it has on you. And like I said, you guys can potentially have different political beliefs, but be okay in a relationship. But if you feel like those things matter so much to you, that's something to consider. It, it, you know, keep that in mind. It seems like it really does affect you. But I, I don't see it that it, you guys can't work. It, it seems like if, if Trump never came into the presidential race, you guys might have been a lot better off because he's... Um, brought up a lot of issues That's for you brutal. guys <laughs> for you guys he's brought up a lot of issues because uh you know for you it's so such a negative thing and he's supporting it and it seems like even it affects the way you look at him in some ways or at least look at the relationship so I, i'm obviously not giving That's you a hard for me because sure sometimes i think someone like him he's a, such a good person when he can relate to this kind of mentality and then support him, and every time he, he told me, baby, you just wait, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> Stock market, how doing good? See? <laughs> everything's going to be good. Yeah. Well, and- you know, you know, like I said, it, I do have to wrap up the show. I'm going to just I'll give some kind of final comments, but um, you guys are going to see things differently. And of course, when you look at any kind of political thing, because of your bias, you can look at it a different way. A Trump supporter will say, look what he's done to the economy. Uh, a Democrat or Obama supporter says, well, those are things that Obama put in place, blah, blah, blah. So, you, you know, you guys are going to disagree and see even the same reality differently. So that's why I wouldn't get too much into try to convince each other of these things. So I'm not going to give you a verdict of this is not an issue or it is an issue. It can be, but it, it is possible you guys can survive with with even with this difference in your political views. But I would pay attention to one, how he sees you, which you're saying you feel good about, and two, how much you feel your worldviews don't overlap, where you feel like even the way you just are going to interact with the world might be different. If you don't see those as critical issues, you might be okay. But, you know, when you say you have an argument with him about this and you feel like you want to break up, that's telling us it's bringing up some really big feelings for you, and it's worth looking at. I wish we had some more time. Maybe you can call back again and we can discuss it a little bit further, even looking at yourself and how this might relate to you and your own uh, you know, background and things. But for now, I'll have to end the show tonight. Hopefully, we can talk again. Sure. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Really thank you. I your show. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thanks for calling. Have a good night. Thank you. All Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you to the callers and the listeners out there. And I'm here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night. <laughs>